Now, start off with a couple of questions. Well, three questions, several questions. How have you gone over the past week in challenging yourselves or positioning yourselves to be in need for Jesus? How have you gone at placing yourselves personally and implementing those avenues that he has given us, whether it be the word, fellowship, worship, evangelism, whatever it might be, meditation on the word? How have you gone at positioning yourself to place yourself in that position of need? That, that statement I made last week, that position of perpetual need for him. How have you gone at doing that over the past week? I know that for myself at least, they have been baby steps, baby steps of just making choices to trust instead of react, to take a step back instead of jumping in, to be still and know that he is in charge or grumble and complain. How have you gone at doing that? Like yesterday, I was at my cousin's wedding. I got to officiate my cousin's wedding, which was a great blessing, and and on the way there, it was at uh, the grounds of Alexandria, uh, over by Zetlands, which was, it was a really nice, beautiful spot. But I made the mistake of leaving at 4 o'clock when the, I was supposed to be there at 5.30. I gave myself an hour and a half. Yeah, that wasn't enough time at all. The traffic was shocking. And so I'm driving, and I'm starting to feel myself getting anxious because it was just like stop after stop after stop. And then it was right then that God burdened my heart and said, this is a place of need. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust me or are you going to try to weave through traffic? Are you going to trust me and just allow me to do what I do and allow you, Joe, to trust me in this? And it was something as simple as that where just saying, okay, Lord, this is my state of need. I'm in a position of need. I'm going to trust. I'm going to ask, Lord, can you please get me there on time? If not, that's fine. But I'll know whatever it is. You know what's best. You know where I need to be. You know my... My, my cousin and, and, and his fiance, they're not Christians, but you know what would be a good testimony. I'm going to leave this in your hands. And I, said, and, and I just said, all right. And so every time, stop after stop after stop, I'd sit there and say, okay, Lord, you know what you're doing. I go through a green light. Thanks, Lord. I see a green light off in the distance. I says, am I going to make that one, Lord? Got through. Yeah, thanks, Lord. <laughs> but the thing is this, when I see another one, a green light, am I going to make that one, Lord? And I stop. Thanks, Lord. Okay. You know what's best. And I got there right on 5.30. Walking the doors at 5.30, and I'm like, thanks, Lord. And I got to be there, and I got to share with my, my cousins caught up. And I shared this with some people already. This is the first wedding I've been at for a long time where I was not confused for security. <laughs> I just blended in with everybody. I was, just, I was considered average height. I was actually considered like some of the smaller side of things. And I'm like, I met, I met my, my uncle's grandson. He's like six foot five. And I was like, wow. And it was just, it was, it was really, it was really neat. It was really neat. And I just felt so, so tiny. It's like, this is, this is so nice. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's me. So how have you gone over that past week? Now, in the, this morning, I'm, I'm praying that this morning we can discover this place of need again. That we can go on this journey together as a church family and discover this place of need for ourselves as we look at our passage of Scripture to say, uh, what the passage of Scripture says. And, and we might sit there like the disciples last week in Matthew 24, 3, be able to go to Jesus privately and say, tell us, 
tell us what will be and when that will be, that we will find this place of perpetual need. And so if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 16. So in the context of today's passage, Jesus is tested by the religious leaders of the day, and and they are asking him for a sign. They are asking him for a sign, basically to say, confirm to us who you are. You make all these claims, you do all these things, you confirm to us, give us a sign to show us the evidence that you are who you say you are. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 16. We're just going to read verses 2 to 4. He says this. He replied, Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now, a couple of weeks ago, well, several weeks ago, we looked at the example of the Lord Jesus and how the Lord Jesus gave us an example in three ways. One was knowing the sovereignty of his Father. The other was knowing the authority of his Father. And thirdly was knowing the timetable of his Father. And what I'm hoping today is that as we look at this passage, we will discover as well what we see. That, that question keeps burning in my mind that Jesus asked the disciples, do you see all these things? What do you see? Do you see the things around you? And are you able to interpret, specifically in this passage, the signs of the times, the signs of what's happening? So if, I say, if you'll allow me, let's pray and let's seek God as we study and place ourselves in this position of need. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you love us so much you sent your son to die for us, to reconcile us, to restore us into a right relationship with you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who is above all things and before all things and through whom all things exist. Thank you that in Christ we are made complete and that we are sealed by your Holy Spirit. And now we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you will teach us, you will connect with us, You will place us in a position of need that as the deer pants for water, so our souls will thirst and long for you. May we not be content with the temporary things of this life, but consumed only with yourself and the eternity that you have promised us in Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So when you look at this passage, Jesus' response is a condemnation of their request. They're asking for a sign. They're saying, look, show us a sign. Give us something that confirms to us who you are. But what's of note is that he says, nah. He says, "Uh, I'm not not gonna give this to you because up to this point of time, all the teaching that he has taught up to this point, all of the, the things that he has done in his ministry up to this point, all of the miracles that he has performed up to this point, all the, the, 
all, all of the rebukes, all of the corrections, all of the, the, the promptings, all of the admonitions that he has done up to this point have been done to confirm to everybody around who he is. It all confirms his identity as the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It all confirmed that he was the promised deliverer who was wonderful and counselor, who was mighty God, who was everlasting Father, and who is the Prince of Peace. Everything is done confirmed his identity as the Messiah. So the fact that they were asking for a sign, and I'll talk slower now, so for a fact that they were asking for a sign revealed their willful ignorance of who stood before them. It reflects an accurate portrayal of what our human hearts are like. That we will believe what we want to believe, that we will hold to what we will hold onto, that we will embrace what we want to embrace. That's called an irrational faith. An irrational faith when you have the truth laid before you and you willingly turn your back upon it. I mean, you think about it. When we looked on Christmas Day, the Magi recognized him in the heavens and followed a star that led them to him. They recognized in the stars through the creation that God had gave that this is the Messiah. They recognized that and they saw that and they went there and they worshiped him. Even Herod's own wise men looked at the scriptures and said, we will find him in Bethlehem. And then they sought to execute him when they discovered from the scriptures themselves where the Lord Jesus, where the Messiah would be. God himself testified to the identity and nature of his son at his baptism when he said after he was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased as the spirit of God descended upon him like a dove for all to see, for all to see. And all of that, all of that news, you know, even in a church like ours, you know how things travel. You know how gossip moves. You know how news just goes, hey, did you see Jimmy? Oh, did you hear about Pat? It was heard, it was seen, and it was even experienced by these religious leaders and utterly dismissed. They chose not to. Hence the illustration Jesus gives. You can recognize what sort of day tomorrow is going to be by the way the sky looks. You can recognize what the morning, what the day is going to be like when you see the sky in the morning. And then Jesus says to them, if you can identify and recognize these things, something as simple as that, you can't see what's in front of you now with all of the signs, with all of the teaching, with all of the testimonies, with all of the life that you see before you now. You're telling me you don't see what's standing before you? You don't see who is standing before you? Why? Why? I mean, think about this. When John the Baptist was curious, when he was arrested, he sent some of his disciples and said, can you go check out and ask? And, and so they go to Jesus and they said, are you the one that we're waiting for? Or are we looking for another? And what did Jesus say to John's disciples? It's in Matthew eleven four and 5. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. His works spoke for themselves. His words confirmed his authenticity and his life glorified his father. That's why he wouldn't entertain this sign that these leaders were asking of him. He didn't want to entertain that from it. It wasn't worth his time. He merely said this. He said, I'm going to give you the greatest sign. I'm going to give you the ultimate authenticity. I'm going to give you the apex of my validity as to who I am. And he says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, who as Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Oh, sorry. Sorry, that's what he says, the wicked and adulterous. Anyway, carry on. Okay. A sign they chose to deny back then, and it's a sign they choose to deny today. Like I said before, it's the example given here. It's a picture of a heart that wants to believe what they want to believe and hold to what they want to hold to. Now, this, I think, is a very important lesson for us. We have been given so much regarding the timetable of the Lord Jesus. We have been given an inside look as to what Jesus is going to be doing, how he's going to do it, and the way through which he will do these things. We have been given all of these things. We have been given even more than what the Pharisees have been given. Like the Pharisees had the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures. The, the Pharisees had all of these prophecies from the past. Well, that's what we have been given. But you know we, what we have been given that the Pharisees didn't get? We have God himself dwelling within us as the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit himself. We have God himself dwelling within us to give us an understanding of the Scriptures, giving us the ability to discern what is going on around us, giving us the ability to sit down and weigh things up. We are told in Scripture itself that we have now the capacity to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart through the Word of God. And so if we're sitting there not being able to recognize or able to see or interpret the signs of the times that's going on around us, then maybe we are focused on the wrong things in our lives. Then maybe we're prioritizing the things of this world over the things of God. Maybe we're embracing the popularity or the status that what people give us rather than the acknowledgement and of the well done that we hear from our Father when we stand before Him. Because, look, I... I'm not, I'm not, I am not a prophet, I'm not the smartest of people, okay, or anything like this, but I can tell you two facts, two facts that go without saying regarding the timetable of the Lord Jesus. I can tell you this without a doubt, without a doubt, these two things are this, one, Jesus is coming back, and two, we need to be ready. That's it. Everything falls under those two titles. Everything falls under those two titles. Firstly, that Jesus is coming back. You know why I know Jesus is coming back? Because he said so. That's it. You don't need anything more than that. He promised his return. In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, when he's talking with his disciples, he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
He talks about this. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Last night, I met my cousin, uh, Armando. Armando, really nice guy, and his little daughter, Esther. It was really nice. And so they had to do a, a number of trips from the place back to the hotel. And so da- Damon, his brother-in-law, said, I'll drop off these guys, and then I will come back and get you. And so it was about 11, about 11-ish last night, 10.30, 11-ish. And so he, I, I, I was still with my brother, Rudy, and, and his wife, Juanita, and we're sitting there having a chat. And then we walked out. It made about half an hour. I walk out there, and on the side of the road, I see Esther and Armando still standing on the side of the road waiting for Damon to come back. Because my brother, if, he, if you're watching this, Rudy, yeah, I had to take you home. But anyway, okay, it won't happen again. All right. So, so, we, uh, so we come out there, and there's Armando. And we said, you're still standing here. It's been, it's been half an hour. And we sat there, and we talked with him. And then he said, and I said, look, I can take you. I can drop you off in the way. I know where, I know where the, the hotel is. And he goes, do you have a, a baby seat, a car seat? I said, oh, no, I don't. Yeah, then, then I'll wait. And then he said to me this, Damon said he'll be back. That's all he needed. And while we're talking, what happens? Damon pulls up. I see Damon. How you going, bro? Have a good one. And then they went away. But see, Armando had a confidence. It wasn't when he wanted. It wasn't straight away or anything like this. But he knew his brother-in-law was coming back. And because his brother-in-law made the comment, he knew it without a doubt and had confidence in such a thing. You know what we do as Christians when we, when we make reference to the Lord Jesus' return? We know up here that he says he's going to come back. But because it doesn't fall within our timetable, we're thinking, ah, is he? Or we get consumed with other things that take us away from that. So we have the Lord Jesus who says this. The angels themselves reminded the disciples in Acts chapter 1, Verses 9 to 11, he said, while they're standing there, while they're all standing there talking to the Lord Jesus, we read he was taken up before their very eyes. In verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky, and as that was happening, two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into the heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. I remember many years ago, a a guy named Reuben Edwards and Brian Tafford, who were non-Christians, went to a Bible study with me, and they asked my Bible study leader at the time, Stephen Courtney, and said, well, I was only a very young Christian, and they said, uh, why why do we believe Jesus is going to come back in the heavens? Why do we believe that? Why do Christians believe that? And this was the verse that Stephen pointed them to, and said the same way he goes into the heavens, the same way he's going to return. It's going to be the point the gospels say when it'll be like, like lightning fills the sky, so will the Lord Jesus fill the sky for all to see as Lord of all. That's absolutely amazing. So he's going to come back there. So we have the angels that remind us. We have Paul who encourages us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. All right, The dead in Christ will rise first at the end of verse 16. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, what? Encourage each other with these words. Verses we know, 
verses we have heard, verses we believe, but we have relegated to the back burners of our Christian life. You know why I know that? Because we don't live with the urgency that Jesus will return. We don't. You know when your spouse goes away and your wife will say to you, can you make sure the house is clean? And you don't touch anything until it's like the day before. And then when they're coming back, there's this urgency. Oh, I've got to, got, to, got to mop, got to vacuum, I'll do the windows, I'll do all this clean. You have this urgency and you're rushing around because you know your wife is going to be back at a certain time. We know the Lord Jesus is going to come back, but we're like, yeah. And we just let things go, don't we? We don't live with the urgency that it could be at any time Jesus returns. Now, the thing is this. We aren't given. I mean, the Lord Jesus himself says that the, the day or the hour, we do not know the, the hour that he returns. That's left in the, in the hands of the Father. Jesus himself said that. So we don't know. But here's, here's the thing. We, we just think, ah, we, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. No, you don't. Because here's the thing. None of us know, like at any point, we could go to glory. And I, want, I pray this doesn't happen, but one of you here could on the way home go to glory at any stage. For those who don't know, and I've, I've shared the story a lot, I'm sorry. It's like when I ended up in my coma, I was on the back of a moving vehicle on a, on a large property, great time. My wife was driving and I fell off the back of a moving vehicle and I landed on my head and, 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 and I ended up in a coma. And my wife said, Oh, Faith was only very young, but my wife said, because oh, Faith said to her while she was driving to the office, said, Dad's, Dad's off the car, because I was sitting on the back of it, not in it, which is stupid. Um, and my wife said, oh, so she drove around, but she knew something was wrong when she came back around, and she saw that I was just lying there, not moving, and all the papers that I had just blown around everywhere. And she thought, okay, something's wrong. And, and it was at that point where I, I almost died. Did I, did I think that was going to happen? No. Did I plan that to happen? No, at any point, you could be called to, called to glory, at any point. So that urgency, you want a state of perpetual need, that is a state of perpetual need. That at any point, you can go see your Savior, any point. And we don't, but we don't live, we live like we're invincible. We live that it would never happen to us. I know now for a fact, and I shared this, I know now for a fact that I am getting older because now I think about self-preservation. I was on the roof the other day. I remember I said, I was on the roof the other day and I was going to jump off it because I thought that's the fastest way down. I'll just jump off it. The ground's nice and soft where the land is. I thought, oh yeah. And then for a split second, I thought, okay. And I went, oh, but then I could hurt my knees. Oh, I could, my ankles. Oh, no, I better climb down. And then I got down and I thought, wow, I've, I've never done that before. And I told my daughter, and my daughter just goes to me, no, that, and I says, I, I now know, uh, like I'm getting older because I'm thinking this way. My daughter says, Dad, that's not normal. She goes, normal people think about that all the time. The fact that you think about that now as a 50-year-old, that's worrying. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Okay, so now I'm a lot more careful now. So yeah, so that's where I know, all right? But here's the thing, we know, we know this is coming, we know the Lord's coming back, we know, but we don't live that way. And here's the thing, a lot of us take the same attitude that a lot of non-Christians have, a lot of critics have, a lot of skeptics have, because Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, they say this, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors die, ancestors dies, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
It's the mockers and scoffers that sit there and look at you. You live for this coming? You trust in this coming? Where is this coming? It's been thousands of years. It's been so long. And so what's going to happen? Hey, I know for a fact that my God cannot lie. I know that for a fact. It says that in Scripture, in Titus. He cannot lie. But he works to his timetable, not mine. He works to his timetable, not yours. And what he does according to his timetable is what is best for you and what glorifies him. Which means this, if we know that he's returning, we then have to be ready, okay? Oh yeah, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. Because I know, I am told in the scriptures that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, I've stuffed up my slides. Okay, all right. I know Jesus will return like a thief in the night, which means it's unexpected, but prepared for. Do you, who, who locks their house at night? Raise your hand. You lock your place at night, don't you? You don't want people to break in. So what do you do? Okay, I'll lock everything up. I'll get prepared in case somebody shows up, in case somebody tries to rob me. You, it's unexpected, but prepared for. We don't know when the Lord Jesus returns, but we prepare for that return. I know that Jesus' return will be preceded by the hearts of man growing more and more inward than outward, growing more and more cold to the things of God. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I preached from this a number of months ago, actually a couple of years ago now. But I really like this passage. The phrase that's made about this passage is that he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. That's what makes this passage so difficult to swallow. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we read this. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People, remember he's talking about the church. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. This is a description of the church in the last days. And I'm, I'm really sorry to say this. A majority of the church seems to, not, not GCC, but a majority of the 21st century church are going this way. They are going this way. This is marking what the, what the world is like. It's going to get worse before things get better. I, I know, as we look at Matthew 24 last week, I know that Jesus' return will be accompanied by more false prophets seeking to deceive, more political and military conflicts on a greater scale, more natural disasters that remind us of how much we cannot control. I mean, I, I look at what happened in New Zealand. Uh, I was talking with... My, my brother yesterday, who hasn't seen the sun for weeks, and I was talking with him, and he was just telling me the stuff that had happened. Belford, one of my cousins who lost everything, they, 
he said he got a call from his kids and said, Dad, the water level's rising. And he was like, oh, and so he stopped work, went home. By the time he got here, Belford's a little bit taller than I am. The water level was up to here when he arrived. They lost both cars, they lost everything in their house. The, the, the double level, just everything got absolutely destroyed. My sister-in-law, Juanita, yesterday shared with me a terrible story of a man who lost his daughter when the house, the water level was rising and they climbed on the counters, then it was still rising and then he, he started putting his kids in the roof because all the power was out, there was a dark, he couldn't see anything, see anything and he put his kids up into the roof and trying to get to the top and his two-year-old fell back into the water and got swept away. And he couldn't dive in to go save her because the other young kids would be left. And just, just things like this, it's just more and more things taking place. Just these, these nat- more and more natural disasters going on, more false prophets promising life but peddling death, more persecution for those who truly know Jesus as the heart of mankind just grows colder and colder to a God who loves them so much. That's what these last days are like. I, I know things will get worse rather than get better. So what then does our readying, what does our preparedness look like in light of this? And uh, how can I put this? I, I want to start off with saying this. You know, how, how do we get ready? How do we prepare? We have today, we have today in the Western world, we have more resources to, to biblical truth than at any point in history. We have more access to more teaching, more great teaching. We have more meetings. We have more conferences. We have more events. We have more Bibles available to us in the Western world than had at any time, at any time through all of human history. We have more access to anything when it comes to the things of God. We have that with us and available to us now. And yet, We have a church that is more illiterate biblically. I remember asking a bunch of young people, what's John 3.16? And nobody could quote it to me. Nobody. And I'm like, in my my self-righteous ego, it's just like, seriously? Seriously? You don't know John 3.16? We have, a, we have a, a, a church that is more biblically illiterate. We have a church that is more carnal. We have a church that is more self-centered, more ignorant, more shallow, more fragile, and more weak than at any point in human history too. In the Western world. In the Western world. And so how then do we, how then do we move from this place of fragility, from this place of weakness, from this place of of shallowness? There was a great, I don't know if I shared it with you guys last week, I don't think I did. There was a great comment that Steph made. So Steph is, for those who don't know, she does youth on Friday night. And uh, she was sharing about the camp that they took the youth on, the search camp, which was a great blessing. And, And praise God, praise God, keep praying for Friday night. We had maybe 18 kids about 18 kids now that come along and God's really working there and bringing kids to know him and discipling. So please, please continue to pray for Friday night. But uh, she, said, she said something really cool. She goes, she goes, if, she goes if, you're, if, if the, 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 the register, the, the measurement of your excitement for Jesus is, is search camp, that's down here. She said, that's down here. If that's all you think your Christian life is at a camp, that's down here. 
I see that. I mean, it's great to have. It's wonderful to have. It's a wonderful experience. But that's down here. Why? Because Jesus wants to, you to experience the abundance of himself. He wants you to take you much further from out of the camp into the real world, into your homes, into your jobs, into your families, into your neighborhoods. And he says, that's what he wants to do. He's got so much more for you. So don't use this. And, and, and I love camp. I think camps are amazing things, but that's, that's down here. He wants to take you so much further than that. And what that is, is you deepening your work, your relationship with him. And so how then do we work on our preparedness for the Lord's return? And I think it begins, firstly, with a change of thinking, a change of perspective, or as Paul puts it in Romans 12 too, a renewing of your mind. That's where it starts. It starts with a renewing of your mind, because out of that renewing of your mind, there's this change of mentality when you desire to delight yourself in the Lord and that he gives you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. When you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning he changes your desires. He doesn't give you what you want. He changes your desires to want what he wants, to long after what he longs after, to, to, to search after what he searches after to love what he loved, to care for what he cares for, to concern yourself what he concerns himself with. So we start with this. How does our renewing of our mind start? It starts with prayer. It starts with asking. It starts with crying out. It starts with calling out to the Lord. Because in calling out, we start aligning our hearts with his we start aligning our agenda with his agenda, and he starts to change me by his spirit from the inside out. That's what happens. We sing it from the inside out. And, and it's, it's amazing the change that he brings about. Just your change in mentality, just your change in desire. And, and you know it's nothing else but God working in you. Because when the change happens from the inside out, it's a change that lasts because it's transformation. It's not conforming, it's transforming. Conforming is pushing yourself into a, into a shape. It's forcing yourself into a particular shape. It's, remember that game show where they have the, 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 the sort of, they have the wall and it has like a, 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 like a, a cutout, and the person has to match to the cutout as the wall passes. Do you know what I'm talking about? All the, all the aunties and uncles are just like, I, I watch like proper TV that benefits me. <laughs> but, that, that, that builds the soul. I don't watch game shows like that. That's what they're saying. But that's what conforming is. You force yourself into a particular shape. Then when the shape passes through, what do you do? You go back to how you are. I feel comfortable like this. I don't want to stay like this for too long. And I don't want to stay like that for too long. That's what it is. That's what a conforming is, moving yourself to a particular framework where transforming is that when you are transformed into that shape, we, we are changed into that shape. And what's crazy is this, God gives you the desire to change, which I really love. So I read this in Psalm, or Psalm, there it is here. I will call with all my heart, answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I will call out, and he changes your desire to obey. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. You call out, and he gives you the desire to keep. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope 
in your word. You call out and he changes your desire of where you place your reliance. When a heart is renewed and desirous of the Lord, then redeeming the time becomes a priority. When you call out, he, this is the desire to make the most of every opportunity. The desire to sit down and place yourself in this position of need. Then being with Jesus becomes vital to you to want to be with him. Like the sinful woman of Luke 7 who went into the Pharisee's house and disregarded the disdain that was looked down upon her by the Pharisees so she could be near Jesus and wash his feet. She didn't care because the priority for her, well, the vital, the, the lifeblood for her was to be near Jesus and express her worship of him. So she didn't care about that. Then you have like, who, what is it? Then the, the call, then these calls, the call to, to obey, the call to love one another, to fellowship one another, to walk in humility with one another, to offer hospitality to one another, to encourage one another. These all become just outworkings of an enthused life that wants to be near Jesus. That's what happens. But this means for us then what? To, to look, okay, I know he's coming and I wanna be ready. And in that being ready, you know, you know the greatest thing you can do to be ready is to draw near to Jesus. That's it. That's it. As you draw near to Jesus, as you spend time in His presence, it'll make you want to be prepared. It'll make you want to get ready. It'll make you want to be holy because He is holy. It'll make you want to do good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It'll make you want to proclaim the gospel and tell other people about this love that is, that is completely reckless and completely full of abandon for you. It was demonstrated in His love on the cross and, and He wants us to be able to explain that and share that with others. And that's what it means. In light of knowing Jesus' timetable, you only need to know one that he's coming back. And two, you've got to be ready. And being ready means being with him because irrespective of what this life holds, you will be overwhelmed by the sheer beauty and majesty of who he is. There's this wonderful quote I came across by John Piper, and, and I love this. And when I saw it on YouTube and I watched it and I just, I just typed out what he said on this video because the passion with which he says this the, the desire to, to, to know God. And, and he says this, okay? He goes, you can read theology 10 hours a day, 40 years long, and not know God as beautiful, all satisfying, highest treasure of your life. Who cares about knowing God the way the devil knows God? He hates everybody. Knowledge of God helps him hate people. We're talking about knowing God here. People don't know God really as who he is, as infinitely valuable, as infinitely beautiful, as infinitely satisfying. Why your soul was made. There are more pleasures at His right hand, more eternal joys in His presence than you could have in 10,000 sexual trysts. The question is, do you know that? Because if you know that, sin has lost its dominion in your life. A tryst is a rendezvous. A tryst is an encounter. 
And so 10,000 sexual encounters or rendezvous, it, it pales in comparison. We're the whole realm of nature mind that we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, divines, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's, that's what we want to be captured by. That's how we interpret the signs of the times. Do you see, do you recognize what's going on around you? And does what you see push you or force you or cause you to move to Jesus Christ? Because nothing else compares to him. Nothing else is worth more than him. Nothing else is more valuable than him. I pray you see this today. I pray you will see this need for the beauty of Christ in your life and you'll hold on to it with your whole heart. That's my prayer. And with that, we will close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in Him there is beauty beyond comparison. There is grace so undeserved. There is love so fulfilling. We are, we are captured we are enamored, we are in awe of the greatness of who you are, Lord Jesus. I pray you will remove the scales from each of our eyes, things that are affecting our ability to see the sheer greatness, the sheer majesty, the, the glory of the only Son of God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who gave us all for us, that we might know you as our Lord and Savior. And so I pray that today, we will see you above all else, that we will interpret what goes on around us through you, that we will be trusting in your sovereignty, trusting in your authority, trusting in your plan for each of our lives. I pray as we leave here, we will not soon forget not only the greatness of your love, but the privilege granted to us in this relationship we share with you. And so we ask for you to dismiss us now and to, Father, stir our hearts to be satisfied with you and with you alone. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. And God's people said, amen.